What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. August 25th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of the ideas behind American exceptionalism, the spirit of American exceptionalism, and this is what Ayn Rand called the uniquely American sense of life. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff, and I see some people joining me over here in the Blog Talk Radio chat room. This is not my usual day, although it's going to become one of the days in which I'm going to do a show starting in September. That's one of the housekeeping things that we have to talk about here. I I, I can be heard. I understand. I did since Wednesday make a tweak on my setup that's going to make it a bit more reliable. I was using a very good, I thought, Wi-Fi connection for my Mac Pro laptop, and I hadn't had any problems with that for months, and I don't know if that was part of it or not, but now we're on Ethernet, so I have an Ethernet to USB-C or whatever, and I've got it all plugged in, and it's working. So we're going to be testing that out over the next couple of weeks, and I guess what we'll do is I'm going to start the three-day-a-week schedule right after Labor Day. That seems like the best option because probably on Labor Day I wouldn't be able to do a show anyway. And so what we'll do is we'll start on that Wednesday, which is September 6th, and then I'll go Wednesday, Friday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So it'll be Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, starting on September 6th. I think that's going to be pretty exciting. Welcome everyone who's filing into the chat room over here at Blog Talk Radio. If you go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, you can see I still have this title. I've been trying to finish this topic, Charlottesville and the American Sense of Life. There are a couple of other topics that I want to get into today. One of the topics is arguably a spinoff from this Charlottesville topic because one of the things that's been discussed out there in the world is, uh, you know, this idea of what sort of platform should people be giving to Nazis, racists, white supremacists, 
maybe even alt-right. Some people have a, a dispute about that. At what point do, you know, should we withdraw a platform from them? At what point do you have a right to withdraw a platform? What is the best policy if you are a private company? What is the proper policy if you are government or quasi-government like university? That's one of the topics that we'll be talking about. We've got then, as far as I see, roughly three big topics. I'm going to try to break up the show then accordingly, do about 20 minutes or so on each topic. One thing that you're going to see, and this is starting today because I need to start getting practice, is I'm going to take little breaks. And so I'm going to have two what's going to end up being commercial breaks. But for you guys who are listening live, all you're going to hear is a bit of music for a short period of time. And that's where I'm going to insert some ads. Those of you who've been listening to the show recently know that I'm going to, in in addition to doing more shows, start trying to monetize and see what I can do with this because I was inspired by Adam Carolla, the little masterclass that I took. So what I'll do you know, approximately half hours in at the half hour breaks, so I'm going to play a little bit of music for you here. You guys can stretch your legs or whatever if you're listening live. And those of you, like I said, who end up listening to the recorded podcast, you'll have ads that you'll hear. It's not going to be a lot of ads. It's a lot fewer ads than if you were listening to terrestrial radio or the blaze or anything like that. It's not going to be anything like that. Like I said, once every half hour or so, I'll take an ad break and then insert maybe what one or two ads. I haven't really played with it yet but I'm going to play with it see how it goes realize that what I'm trying to do here is make an attempt at actually doing this as a career and providing more value to you guys so that's what I do hopefully you'll understand those of you who end up listening to the podcast and have to endure the ads that this is part of the whole program Uh, so one thing is I have to give you a show that's worth you listening to some ads sometimes the other thing the pressure that I felt this week and you guys if you follow me on social media you've seen me half joking about it but it's only half a joke it is why in the world should you listen to me instead of listening to Christian Sending who is the classical composer that I discovered thanks to the sculpture of his brother which a a friend of mine had sent a picture on Facebook, didn't know who the sculptor was. Who is this? So I've been going down this trail of value pursuit, and the latest stop on it is listening to the music from Sending. And I wasn't brought up with classical music. So I listened to this, and in particular, there's one piece that I put in the program notes. Again, program notes are at don'tletitgo.com. I link to this one called Cantu Dolores, which I love. It's fewer than 10 minutes. So if you've got 10 minutes, I think it's a good way to spend it. Not right now. Listen to me now. Listen to me because I'm the one introducing you to this awesome thing. But if you have 10 minutes to spare later and you're not listening to that, then I, w- I would say you're wasting your time. But again, am I a music expert? No. If we had a music expert here, somebody who knew music and the psychoepistemology of music appreciation or something, then this person could tie in my love for the other piece of music that I put in the program notes, the others from Jezebel's to the Syndig and and tell me why I love both of these. But I did play the Cantu Dolores for someone who says that she was brought up and is a big consumer of classical music and also loves it like I do. So that's my reality check. But Anyway, a few other people have said that they liked it as well. Highly recommended. Check that out. And I do. I have to ask myself, why should you be listening to me instead of that? So let me dive in and start giving you 
the content that I've planned here. I'm going to actually be cutting back on the Charlottesville and American sense of life piece. And last time I actually talked about this for quite a while before I realized that I wasn't connected. I've set everything up here at the, you know, on, on the screens and everything so that I'll keep a closer tab on whether I'm connected, that I'm going to see the all caps in the chat room say no sound a lot more easily than I did last time. But I think we're going to have a reliable connection here. Does this sound good, everyone? Can everyone hear me well? You should be able to hear me quite well, I would assume, with this setup. And everything sounds nice and clear in my headphones. So hopefully that's true for you as well. So the, the conception here with this, with this Charlottesville and the American Sons of Life, was to look at the aftermath of Charlottesville and, you know, the public reaction to it and everything and ask, what is the health of the American Sons of Life or to translate it into terms that are more mainstream? And this is the way that I'm working it into my intro. I'm describing it as the spirit of American exceptionalism, the spirit behind American exceptionalism. Americans' confidence, you know, what are the ideas behind Americans' confidence in American exceptionalism? That's the conception. So what do we do for that? What we do is we look at our resource that gives us the description of all the facets of the American sense of life, of this spirit behind American exceptionalism. And that is the essay that inspired the title of this show. It's called Don't Let It Go by Ayn Rand. It's in a book called Philosophy Who Needs It. I've got a link in the program notes. If you haven't purchased it, please go ahead and buy it through my handy Amazon link. You'll be supporting the show that way as well without any extra cost to you. Uh, in that essay, which Rand wrote in 1971, she describes a number of facets that she says comprise the unique American spirit, the unique American attitude about themselves and their place in their world, their chance for success, these are all the different ideas. So what I've asked you guys to do just as a thought experiment, as programming your subconscious to be on the lookout for stuff, is to consider explicitly the different facets that she lists in this essay as comprising the American sense of life. And so I'm going to go through those. And then as we go through, I'll say a couple things about things that I think are relevant I've told you before that I think that there have been some good signs that have fallen out from Charlottesville, but also some disturbing signs, right? Uh, I do think that this debate that's going on about giving Nazis a platform and who should be giving them or not giving them or giving the alt-right a platform or not, that the debate that's coming out of this is a, is a healthy thing. How that debate is resolved is going to end up giving us some indication about where the American sense of life is. But in any event, I like, I like that as a sign. I like the fact that a number of businessmen resigned uh, from Trump's various little councils and boards or whatever he calls them, right? Um, and they did, they did so on principle as much as he wants to say that they didn't. I thought that was also a good sign, but we'll, we'll go through these factors. So let me just give you again, Rand, she doesn't give you one overarching definition. Instead, instead, she gives you a list of different factors that she says comprises this. So think of these factors. And I may not have time to discuss this so much with you. I do invite you to call in if you do have 
something particular that you want to add to this topic or the other two topics, 760-888-817. But if we don't have time to finish that discussion or, or to elaborate too much, we can also have that discussion at my blog at don'tletitgo.com. So let me know what you think this aftermath has said about the health of the American sense of life. So here are the factors. Here we go. First of all, Americans see themselves as independent. They refuse to be pushed around or to see themselves as wards of the state in contrast to Europeans. Americans, Rand says, admire achievement, new money, money earned at least honestly through innovation and hard work. That's just as good as old money. You don't have to have old money to be respected in America. Respect for authority figures. We do have respect for our authority figures, but we see them as equals as well, that we can go ahead and talk to them, about them, criticize them respectfully, but as equals. In America, we take initiative. If we see a problem, we don't sit there and say, oh, well, that's above my pay grade and I'm not going to take the initiative or stick my neck out to try to solve it. We actually do take that initiative versus in Europe or even in England, Rand noted, at least in 71, that people were less likely to do that. In Europe, the way she describes it, there's this psychological caste system where people keep their place. In America, we don't have this idea, as they do in Europe, or at least as they did in Europe, of different stores for different classes of people. Anybody can shop anywhere, celebrities, politicians, whoever. You can go to Target or Walmart or whatever you like, and it's not frowned upon. Then she asks also this very interesting question. Do you live emotionally in a world made by others? Or, and she quotes from the poem The Westerner by Badger Clark, do you subscribe to what Rand would say is the more American view of saying this, the world began when I was born and the world is mine to win. In other words, you can make your own life and your own world, your own surroundings in the image of what you think is an ideal. Uh, You believe it is your you know, it's your right to do this, that you, you feel confident that you can do it. Is, is that how you live or do you live in this world that's made by others? And this was one factor that I talked about. God, it was a week and a half now ago that there was a temptation after Charlottesville to live emotionally in this world made by others, namely the news media and some of the politicians who were hyping up the significance of these two groups, the alt-right and the alt-left, we could call them conveniently, but we could also say, you know, more extremely, Antifa proper, which are the ones who are actually subversive and, and violent. And then on the other side, we've got the Nazis and some of the white supremacists who we've seen are willing to use force in, in certain situations as well. Um, those are fringe elements. Right. And we need not we need to not exaggerate the importance of these groups. We need to keep our heads. We need to keep adhering to principle in how we deal with the vitriol that's being spewed out by these groups. We need to have a reality check on Twitter, for example. There's these accounts that are mock Antifa accounts. So there was a Boston Antifa account that I got sucked in by. So you have to check whether 
things that are being said out there are actually legitimately being say it, said by the groups that, you know, supposedly the account is belonging to. It's, like I said, Boston Antifa was a spoof Twitter account, and I, and I got taken in. So don't live emotionally in that world made by others. Don't exaggerate the importance of these people. Let's keep our heads. Let's analyze things and look at things on principle. We're not yet at the stage, as far as we know, you know, that we're on the lifeboat out in the middle of the ocean and that the only way that we can survive is through cannibalism or something, right? So don't do that. Um, I think there's a temptation to do that, but I think the people with the cooler, more level heads are, are not living in that world. And I think that those people are having some influence. All we need is enough of the right kind of minds, the minds who act on principle in a rational, measured, balanced way, you know, to keep having a voice out there in the culture and those good ideas can win. So that's another factor, this idea of living emotionally in a world made by others. Next one, Americans fundamentally seem happy versus Europeans, the way that Rand described it, at least in 71, had more of a sense of lethargic resignation. Uh, Americans, of course, American intellectuals, some of them have this sense of lethargic resignation, Rand opined, but you know, the, the the Americans who themselves see themselves as apart from the public intellectuals were more fundamentally happy. Another thing she said is that Americans tend to be anti-intellectual, but nonetheless still have respect for knowledge and education. And then another factor is a belief in original sin. Americans, she said, rejected the idea of original sin that instead we believe that human beings are fundamentally innocent and on this point I wanted to read to you a little bit from the essay uh, Philosophy Who Needs It she was talking about you know again the contrast between Americans and Europeans and she's quoting from Sartre Uh, Sartre said, I believe in the existence of evil. And he, this American who was there, was not. And Rand writes, this again is a euphemism. It is not merely the existence but the power of evil that Europeans believe in. Americans do not believe in the power of evil and do not understand its nature. She says the first part of the attitude is philosophically true. Right, this idea that the, um, you know, the power of evil, that there is no power of evil. But she says the second, the fact that Americans don't understand the nature of evil makes them vulnerable. And again, quoting directly from Rand, she writes, on the day when Americans grasp the cause of evil's impotence, its mindless, fear-ridden, envy-eaten smallness, They will be free of all the man-hating manipulators of history, foreign and domestic. One thing that she thinks Americans need to grasp, and, you know, here's the question, do Americans grasp this? The cause of evil's impotence is its mindless, fear-ridden, envy-eaten smallness. Do do they grasp that? Or do we, again, live emotionally in this fear-ridden world made by others? That's a question to ask. And I said, you know, there is. I think there's a temptation to live in that fear-ridden world. But 
at the same time, um, hopefully everyone's pretty much gotten a grip by now. We're starting to have a serious debate about some of the issues that have to be addressed. What Now, what do you guys think? Let's see here. Um, people are talking in the chat room about some of Trump's comments, right? And whether Trump's comments were accepted by most people, this idea of the evil on both sides. Local ACLU chapter, Rob says in the chat room, issued a statement deploring Trump's refusal to let both sides off the hook as though only Nazis could be evil or violent. Tim Peck in the chat room says that Senator Warren, who knows if she's going to be running at some time in the future for president, confirms that there are many sides, many sides to this. Okay. Um, And then there's a Rob Aviera. Oh, okay. We've got Stuart in the chat room. I do want to hear what Stuart's got to say about this issue of the American Sense of Life post Charlottesville. Welcome, Stuart. How are you? Aloha. Aloha. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I would tell you I'm doing great, but things you're talking about, which I've seen, that those things really have me worried. The things, all these factors. So when you think of all these factors that I read to you, and I, I tried not to comment too much, but I commented a little as I went through the factors. When you think of these factors explicitly in light of the aftermath of Charlottesville, you're getting worried. Why? Well, I feel as if, to me, Americanism is about that Horatio Alger spirit, you know, and a Horatio Algerist worldview. It was never as consistent, it was never as philosophically consistent as, you know, what Ayn Rand explained, but I thought that was the correct, you know, it set people on the correct path. And I feel as if all the major sides of the political spectrum these days have completely abandoned that. The left has been hostile toward the Horatio Alger spirit, well, since inception, who's always been Okay, so, so ca- encapsulate, I- encapsulate what the Horatio Alger spirit means to you. Can you give kind of a quick description of that? Yes, it means that insofar as you are, it has a can-do attitude, it says insofar as you have the freedom to do so, you can accomplish so much, you can rise from poverty to, to wealth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, is that living let live? And it isn't, isn't necessarily, not necessarily even monetarily, right? It's it's this idea of being able to make your life and your world, the world as you experience it, in the image of your ideal. You know that you are able to create the life that you want. It might include a pile of money, might not necessarily include a pile of money, but you know, nonetheless, being able to live in your life that you want or and do the things that you want to do, right? Yes, it's to pursue the you know it's to live your dreams, to pursue the American dream, you know, and that can be all sorts of accomplishments, all sorts of fulfillment and happiness, and greatly, in this whole you know, the left has always been hostile toward that, and for that's why for a long time, even despite my misgivings about the religious right and everything, I long sympathized with over the Democrats, but you know, ever since Donald Trump has taken over. And all these nationalist movements have been have taken over, even economic nationalism. I feel as if, you know, what has normally been called the political right has abandoned the Horatio Alger spirit. You know, right. they've taken on this us versus them attitude where this, you know, these these um, 
you know, these people, these impoverished foreigners are coming here to take all our resources, and we have to deprive them of that. You know, either they destroy us first or we stop them. Right. I mean, and this 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 is where you have to ask the question, are we at the point where we're on that lifeboat and the only way that we can survive is through cannibalism? Or is it still possible for human beings to peacefully coexist in this world? If it is still possible, and there's a decent possibility, and I think there is, for human beings to peacefully coexist in this world, then we need to deal with each other through rational discourse, and we need to keep advocating for a government policy that acts on principle, not on fear or on populist sentiment, right? Yes. You know, and, and this and this is the thing that this is the thing that it's. I mean, you know, again, I think if you live out on Twitter, for example, there are a lot of very vocal. I'm calling them Trumpists, um, Trump supporters, and they will cloud your idea of of what the average American is. You, you a lot of very angry people talking about vast conspiracies of unelected banks running the world, you know, and all oh, these immigrants are destroying our country and, and all of this really hostile stuff. I doubt that that's really representative of the average American though. You know, these are very, very squeaky wheels out there and we have to not let them, you know, kind of cloud our opinion of, of what the world actually is like and what the culture is, is actually like. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I think that if I thought, those Trumpists were representative of American people in general, or even white people in general, I would adopt that really paranoid, you know, radical leftist and people worldview where, oh, America's all about racism, it's all about stomping on the poor. You know, if I thought the Trumpists yeah. were representative of that, I would believe that that's what America's all about, but it's not. You know, and people who have a paranoid worldview need to get out more and talk to more people, you know, and see. You don't see how, you know, there's still hope for this country. Yes. Yes, I agree. So you think that now, especially in the aftermath of Charlottesville, that some of the people on the right or Republicans are moving in a more dangerous direction. So what examples have you seen? Well, I think Steve Bannon, well, he's out now. But, I mean, he had influence for a long time, and it greatly worried me when he gave this really disturbing tirade about how he said he's he's against legal immigration because people from India and China are coming to the United States on their H-1B visas, and they're under underpricing, you know, native-born workers. And and what about the native-born workers? We have to stop that. They're entitled – they're much more entitled to these jobs because they were born – on the correct side of the border, which to me is like saying we're on the right side of the tracks. Yeah, because it's, and that's an entirely accidental thing. You know, it's not the fault of the person who's over there and nor should it give them any, you know, leg up on anybody else. But, you know, the main thing, again, when I always talk about immigration policy, I say, look, you're asking government to act, right? The government is going to be acting to stop people at the border and check them in some way and, and let, you know, decide whether to let them in. And if it's acting, if government is acting, we want it always to act on principle. And, you know, we, we want a government of laws and not men. And we want when, you know, those laws, those laws to be principled laws. 
And we have to have the law be objective. It has to be based on a danger of initiation of physical force from whoever it is who's purporting to come in. I agree we have to have borders, right? Because the people who are outside and they're trying to come in, they haven't been living in the jurisdiction of the United States. And so they're not under any sort of, you know, law enforcement supervision at all. We don't know the records of these people. They could be, you know, serial murderers and all kinds of, you know, people. We don't know what they are. So, yeah, check them at the border. But what that criteria has got to be is it's got to be the, you know, individual rights, protection of individual rights of Americans here. So it's protection from physical harm only. And it can't be, you know, oh, some person has some ideas in their head. Let's give them an exam and, you know, I mean, what are we going to do? Are you give them like a psychological exam at the border? If you're going to give them an you know, a, a exam based on a set of ideas, they could lie. I, I don't see, you know, you can't do it just based on ideas in the head. You have to do it based on an intent to do harm to Americans and some sort of action that has shown that they're carrying this out. This has always been kind of the common law standard for taking away people's rights for conspiracy, for example. You know, you have an unlawful conspiracy and you've taken at least one overt step to further that criminal conspiracy. So these are the kind of things I want to look at. I want our government to act on principle. And yet, like you're saying, oh, well, you know, we don't want people to come in here on these visas and compete for jobs with Americans. We want to make America great. And their idea of making America great is to insulate everybody from competition from so you've been doing battle out there yourself, out on the interwebs, as we would call them? Oh, yeah. I mean, just today, it's so disturbing. Um, I wanted to ask you if you've seen it. There's this really disturbing op-ed from the Washington Post from August 22nd. Oh, yeah, no, I saw, I, saw, um, I saw you posted about that in the chat room, and no, I haven't seen it yet. So if you go ahead and send me a link in one of the various ways that you have to do that, go ahead and, and send me the link, and then I can take a look at it after but i haven't seen it okay it's so disturbing it's called when free speech becomes a political weapon and it says you know what we need moderated free speech as if there is such Mm. a thing says there's a problem with quote free speech absolutists unquote that's an actual you know slur an actual epithet that it uses and says if you have free speech absolutism then the neo-nazis will take over and then we'll have real censorship you know, and therefore, we need moderated free speech to protect our free speech. And then it actually uses the example of communists, and it says, says, you know that, you know how communism was defeated? They were censored, and that's good. Oh my gosh! <laughs> it's, it's so Orwellian. It's one of the most Orwellian things. Well, I have you know ever what seen. the um. The, the second segment of the show today is actually going to be devoted to that entire issue because the one thing that I did talk about when I was doing part one of Charlottesville and the American Sons of Life is, as I said, I was concerned that, you know, Americans who were fearful after Charlottesville, fearful of Nazi influence in particular, that they would attempt to shut down these events that Nazis were going to hold. And in fact, One thing that I said I was particularly disappointed about, but I didn't get a chance to elaborate too much, was that Senator Ted Cruz went on a radio show and cheered Texas A&M 
for shutting down. I think the event was going to be on September 11th or something. I can't remember when it was scheduled for, but it was a White Lives Matter rally that was scheduled at Texas A&M. I mean, what a ridiculous, you know, White Lives Matter. Okay, great. I mean, what are they going to have? They have like 50 people show up maybe, and they're all going to look stupid and lame. And, and why not just let this thing happen? But in the aftermath of Charlottesville, everybody gets all scared and they say, okay, you know, we're going to shut this down. And Ted Cruz, who I had praised, but I, I had good reason to praise, right? Ted Cruz has been a very principled proponent of freedom of expression. He seems to understand it as well as the connection between spending money and freedom of expression, that corporations should also have a right to speak. He was, you know, of course, in favor of Citizens United. He was against the Democrats' attempt to you know, sort of overrule Citizens United by legislation in the Senate. He gave this impassioned 50 plus minute speech, uh, you know, talking about freedom of expression and its and its link to spending money, that money is part of what freedom of speech is about, that we need to let people spend money to put more speech out there. He seems so good. And then there's, I put the link in the program notes from the last show from the Statesman is, is the Texas publication quoting Cruz to the effect of, yeah, well, I believe in John Stuart Mill and let all the ideas out there and stuff. But then on the other hand, uh, he was cheering that Texas A&M had canceled this event. And he said something like, you know, the world doesn't need to hear their horrible ideas. He, he used some different phrase to describe the ideas like vitriol. I can't remember what it was, but it was very disappointing to me to see someone who seemed to understand freedom of expression so well to come out in an unprincipled way against it in light of Charlottesville. Because again, yes, a woman died in Charlottesville and it's horrible. And the group that was, you know, sitting there parading with the thing and, you know, protesting the taking down of, of this statue and everything, the Nazis with their stupid tiki torches and stuff, ridiculous, bad, and someone who's using a car to plow into people is a horrible thing. But at the same time, this is still a fringe thing. And, and you shouldn't over-exaggerate its importance. You should continue to let these people go out and make fun of, or, you know, uh, make fools of themselves as long as they're not inciting violence. And that's the thing that we need to really explore, I think, in the next segment is talk about what is it to incite violence. And then there's a related issue having to do with, the, these type of high-tech companies that protect Nazi websites or other websites from denial of service attacks. You've seen those stories as well, right, Stuart? Yes. Yeah. yeah, so that's that's another related issue. So, the, so do you want to hang on and then let me know in the chat room if you want to come back on as we're going into those stories in the next segment? Oh, yes. Okay, so I'll go ahead and I'm just going to put you on hold here. And then what I'm going to, go, going to do right now is do the first of my little musical interludes. And I guess what I'll do is I'll play the old intro music, the intro music that I play, used to use when I first started this show. Some of you will recognize it, Radiohead.
Okay, we're back. That was really quick. Those of you who listen live, that's all you're going to hear is the music. Those of you who are listening on the podcast heard an ad or two in the middle. But that's your incentive to join me live. Again, it's going to be starting September 6th. We're going to go Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, probably for the hour and a half because I kind of have my biological, my brain's biological clock geared to that time frame and I don't know if I'm going to be able to give it up simply because I'm going three days a week I just don't feel like I can say enough in in an hour so um, anyway welcome back what we've done so far is explored some of the ideas behind American exceptionalism Ayn Rand gave a list of facets of what she called the American sense of life and asking the question what do we think of the health of the American sense of life in the aftermath of Charlottesville? One thing that I was going to say, and it's relevant to one of the factors, and I kind of skipped over it and I didn't elaborate, is this idea of innocence, the belief in the innocence of human beings that were born innocent, that is either sometimes our upbringing because an upbringing can have an effect on the child, but also the choices that we make in our lives that make us good or bad people in the, in the long run. Is there something in the aftermath of Charlottesville that you can point to and, and say something one way or another about Americans confidence in human beings, innocence, fundamental innocence, or do we have this idea that we are fundamentally guilty people, that all of us are racist deep down inside. There's one little factoid that I'll give you that I think is relevant to this, and and it's that our former president, Barack Obama, of whom I'm not a huge fan, he tweeted out in the aftermath of Charlottesville something to the effect of that all human beings, uh, or, or no, no child, basically no child is born hating somebody else or fearing at somebody else on the basis of their race or religion or other factors like this. So in effect that human beings are born fundamentally good. Now what he would say maybe is that it's the parents that screw them up, but it's also choices. It's some combination of these factors. I think it would be very difficult, for example, to be a a child growing up in schools in Pakistan or the so-called Palestinian territory or whatever, you know, where they're being indoctrinated with hatred for the infidel or for Jews, I think it would be very hard to be brought up in that environment and make the choice not to internalize that hatred, right? So some upbringings it would be very hard to recover from. But nonetheless, what we have, we have a choice. That tweet from Obama was apparently the most liked tweet of all time. So if you look at, you know, the general population on Twitter, the people who don't have a lot of time to spend on Twitter, the people that don't have time to become trolls, to create new accounts simply to harass those of us who speak out on principle, which I get all the time, uh, the normal Twitter user was likely to identify with that statement of Obama enough to click on it and say, look, no, Human beings are born fundamentally innocent, at least with respect to this issue of racism. So I thought that was a good sign. So I'll give you that. Now, what is the thing that I was concerned about when I was doing this show about a week and a half ago, the first aftermath of Charlottesville show? 
what I was concerned about is this issue of freedom of expression that I started exploring with Stuart on the phone just before the break. The concern is to exaggerate the importance of these two groups. And in particular, I said that the concern is to exaggerate the importance of the Nazis. The Nazis, the white supremacists, right, um, the racists that were marching in Charlottesville, particularly in that evening march. Anybody who marched alongside them, I think, is guilty by association of, of supporting their vile vitriol. But these guys are still a small fringe movement. They're just laughable. They really are. And I would say that my attitude about it is reflected very well in this piece that I put in the program notes for today's show. It's published by Fee Foundation for Economic Education. Headline, the best anti-Nazi strategy is to let them speak. Right? Go ahead and let them spew their racist vitriol. Go ahead and let them spew it with one proviso. My proviso is as long as they are not inciting violence. If they're not inciting violence, then what we want the police to do is we want the police to, you know, for instance, keep protect them from Antifa, right? We don't want a repeat of what happened in Charlottesville. As I understand part of the problem with Charlottesville was a default on the part of police to actually keep those groups apart. Uh, keep them, these ridiculous Nazi anti-immigration racist people, let them go out and make fools of themselves have police protection so that you keep them separate from the, you know, equally provoking, violent, prone Antifa people. Keep them separate. Let the Nazis make fool of themselves. And eventually they will continue to fade into obscurity. Everyone is going to just laugh them off as the ridiculous, irrational people that they are. Um, why not just do that? Why not just let them speak? And, and the thing that I said I was concerned about was Ted Cruz, who I've seen as a principled proponent of freedom of expression. Both I and Craig Biddle from the Objective Standard came out strongly in favor of Cruz in part, and I think it was the very first factor that both of us cited, was his principled understanding of freedom of expression. Because we realize that if we're on the premise of coexisting with our fellow human being and taking uh, the state of governments today from statism and the slide towards statism, which is where we are, to an ideal of governments just restricted to the, you know, enforcing the principle of individual rights. If that's where we want to go and we're still on the premise that we can deal peacefully with our fellow man, we need to have freedom of expression. We need to be able to share ideas out in the culture and persuade our fellow man, that the ideas that we're promoting are the right ideas, the ones that are going to eventually result in a government that simply protects our rights and otherwise leaves us alone. That's the goal. This is, this is the thing. We need to have that freedom of expression. And I thought Cruz was the guy. You know, I kept saying, is Ted Cruz the guy? He's the guy. I thought he was the guy. He was the one who understood this best. So it was very disappointing for me to see him, you know, he's talking off the cuff on a podcast, but he seemed to contradict himself. He said, on the one hand, I believe in John Stuart Mill's idea that the best answer to bad speech is more speech. But then on the other hand, he says, I'm glad that they canceled that rally because 
people don't need to hear the garbage from the white supremacists. That's not to me the answer. To me, you know, to me this answer is let's go ahead and let them speak. There are some other, you know, kind of pieces that are out there. Uh, Wall Street Journal, Stuart was talking about one of the pieces, and maybe we'll bring him back on to talk about that a little bit more. But one that has stirred up a lot of discussion is from the guy who is the CEO of Cloudfare. And it was an opinion piece published in Wall Street Journal dated August 22nd. Matthew Prince is the author's name. And he said that he helped to kick a group of neo-Nazis off of the Internet. But now he says he's wondered whether he's made the right decision. He's the co-founder and CEO of Cloudfare. And what he talks about, he's just, look, you know, what does Cloudfare do? Cloudfare is an Internet service provider. And the service that it provides is protecting websites from DDoS. I think that's the correct acronym, attacks, denial of service attacks, essentially. And and what happens is, suppose you are, you know, a semi-famous person or a famous person who has a website that promotes controversial ideas. You, you, you know, have a blog or something and the content is super controversial. What some people try to do is they try to shut you down by... I guess, you know, getting computers and stuff all to hit your website simultaneously to create so much illusion of traffic anyway, not real traffic. This is all computer generated, bot generated traffic, create so much traffic for your website that it gets shut down, that there's so much traffic, it's gone. And apparently Cloudfare is a service provider that can protect you from that. You could imagine that if you are Nazis, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, horrible, hate-spewing racists, that your website would be a target for these hackers to try to shut you down and, and do these DDoS attacks. And what Prince is saying is that any time now, if you want to speak on the web, if you want to have a voice out there, you need to purchase a service from some company like his. And so his worry is that while he himself didn't want to have his company helping Nazis have a platform out there for their hate, right, for their racist, white supremacist vitriol, and I keep saying it over and over because I'm trying to provoke the irrational people, I, I throw it in their face a little. I don't know why I need to keep saying it to you guys, but I, I, I'm pretty upset at some of the reception that I get out there on, on Twitter. Um in any event, he's saying that because he, you know, on the one hand, he doesn't want to provide this service for them, right? He doesn't want to give a platform to Nazis. He doesn't want to help them. But on the other hand, he thinks, well, we need to let them speak. We need to let them make fools of themselves. We need to let people see the ideas that they're promoting and know how ridiculous and hate-filled and irrational that those ideas are. So he says, well, did I do the right thing? Because if you can't buy this service from me, maybe you're not going to be able to do it at all. There's just a handful of companies that provide these services. And if all of us refuse, then these ideas are not going to be out there effectively at all because of these denial of service attacks on them. 
And so I published or, you know, I posted this article and it resulted in a whole bunch of discussion on my Facebook page about, well, what should government, you know, what is government's role in preventing the hacking of websites, if any, you know, if we say, for example, that the Nazis should be able to go to, you know, some public park or, you know, a university or whatever, that the Nazis should be able to march and, you know, state whatever their ideas are and be made fun of, but the police should protect them from any initiation of force and just let them speak. If we think that that's true, what should the government's role be online, right? What should it be in the, in this case? And as I understand it, the Cloudflare company was not itself threatened in any way because it was helping the Nazi website. I don't think it was similar to, you know, for example, in the past, we had bookstores and publishers that were threatened because they either published or carried the book of Salman Rushdie. And there was a fatwa against Rushdie and then there became fatwas against publishers and bookstores and stuff. This is not so as far as I know, Cloudfair, they got the sense that it would be a popular decision if they refused to provide the service to the neo-Nazis, but it's not like they were being threatened for this, right? So they could have decided to, you know, go ahead. They didn't need themselves to be protected by government, but they also had the sense that if they stopped providing service, that nobody was going to protect the neo-Nazis website from these hackers, right? Um, let's see. Okay, so people in the chat room are saying, do you want some suggestions for responses to those who are de- that I'm dealing with on, on Twitter? Uh, Yeah, you can feel free to send me those suggestions for responses on Twitter or join in the discussion. I don't know that we'll talk about Twitter strategy per se here, at least not right now. Uh, I'm being active on Twitter as as part of the aftermath of Charlottesville, but I'm not going to probably go into strategy. So, So here's the question, right? The question is, was this guy right to terminate the Daily Stormer is the website that whose service that he terminated. Was he right to do this or not? And some people, they don't even take the guy seriously. They say, oh, well, he was hoping to get a lot more play out of the fact that he terminated it. And so when he didn't get as much play and publicity and maybe new business because of terminating it, he decided to, you know, feign hand-wringing at the Wall Street Journal and get more attention for himself. I don't know if he's doing that or not. Let's, Let's just take him at his word and say that, yeah, he's actually torn about this. Um, On the one hand, you could say that this is the same situation as the one that Gary Johnson was being made fun of for, which is the Jewish baker being forced to bake the Nazi cake, right? We all, of course, agree that the Jewish baker should not be forced to bake the Nazi cake, that, of course, you have a right to not provide services for Nazis, white supremacists, and everything else. So, yeah, this guy could say, I don't want to help with this platform. On the other hand, you might, as a company policy, decide something like the ideas that's, you know, that are promoted in that FEE article that I just 
you know, gave you a quick introduction to a minute ago. It's in the program notes, the FEE article that says, what's the best way to counter the Nazis is just to let them speak and let them make ridiculous fools of themselves. Of course, you can counter it with answers to their arguments. Uh, That is the best way to deal with it. So perhaps you could say as a service provider that, you you know want to go ahead and continue to provide the service even though you should not be re- required to and i don't think that any of these companies should be required to nor do i think that it would be a function of government to come in and start providing services like this right what we don't want what we don't want i believe you know this is contrary to even some republicans i've seen some people on the right start to call for regulation of Silicon Valley companies like Google, for example. Remember the Google, you know, firing of, of Demore. Some people are saying, oh, well, you know, let's give the left a taste of their own medicine and start regulating them because, you know, the left has called for regulation of companies. Let's start regulating these left-dominated Silicon Valley giants. I don't – I think that's entirely wrong. I don't think that government should be coming in. I don't think government should be providing services. I argued on – you know, the next revolution with Steve Hilton when I was on with Fox saying we do not want government in the position of gatekeeper on the Internet. The Internet is, you know, giving the opportunity of a platform for all of us to share our ideas and our arguments with the world. And the last thing that we want is put it under the control of Big Brother or Big Sister. I was going to say, heaven forbid, Big Sister, but that's because the sister that I have in mind is Elizabeth Warren or maybe Hillary Clinton, but probably Elizabeth Warren. That would be a disaster. I don't want Trump in charge of speech on the Internet either. So I don't think that government has the role here. Now, what you can do is if you can identify where these attacks come from, then it would be government's role to prosecute. Because if somebody is doing one of these denial of service attacks on your website, it is the equivalent of vandalizing your store or, you know, breaking down your door or actually the analogy that people were using on the discussion thread that I have on Facebook, they were saying, it's as if you got a whole huge crowd of people to be filing in and out of the front door of somebody's business at such a rate that the real customers who wanted to go in were blocked and they couldn't come in at all. That's kind of the analogy. You would not have a right to do that in a free society. Any attempt to coordinate something like that where customers are effectively blocked should be prosecuted. And it would be a government's function after the fact to do that. But And, of course, you could lay out rules in advance that if you do this, you're going to be prosecuted, right? I could see a government doing that, just laying out what the standards are in, in legislation. But you have to be objective about it, and you have to address rights violations after the fact, you know, unless there's some, you know, some sort of imminent thing that you think you could shut down. It's not going to be regulation in advance. It's not going to be, you know, government's going to take over cloud fare or its equivalent and be in charge of this any, any more than, you know, government doesn't have to provide you your own private policeman all the time either. What happens if you have something, then you go ahead and you call the police and then they, address the situation. So what can you do if you are a website? You can contract with somebody like Cloudfare or some other company, another private company, 
Some people were saying, oh, Cloudflare is just exaggerating its own significance. There are other people who could provide this service. I'm not familiar enough with the market to tell you how important Cloudflare is or if there really is just a few companies and otherwise you're effectively shut out of speech entirely. I don't know, in effect, if we are actually on that lifeboat and then we start you know, needing to abandon our principles. I don't think we're there. And there was at least one tech person on the thread who said, no, we're not there yet. So, so long as we're not there, I'd say leave it to the free market. I could see a company going either way with this. I could see a company saying, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and continue to provide service for these neo-Nazis, white supremacists, racist scumbags. Um, or on the other hand, I could see I'm not going to do it. Um, you know, I feel like I don't want to use my resources and time and effort to protecting people like this uh, because, you know, it offends me so deeply or whatever. So either way, I could see it. What you can't do consistent with a society based on the protection of individual rights, what you cannot do, whether you are a private company or, you know, again, what you would have to stop if you were the government is you'd have to stop any incitement to violence. Incitement to violence is where you're going to draw the line, right? So you could talk, you know, these racists, they go on and they say, oh, uh, you know, we need to have this immigration policy and keep out people of X race or from XYZ country or anybody from any Muslim country. Uh, we have to keep them all out, you know, and, and uh, we have to keep out people of this race because they all vote Democratic and Mexicans do this and blacks do that. And this, all of this racist stuff that you hear out there and they're you're promoting certain policies based on it and stuff that would not qualify as incitement of violence. Incitement of violence would be something like, you know, there's going to be. A, you know, a bunch of Mexicans celebrating Cinco de Mayo at so-and-so go get them, you know, or, or, you know, so, somehow basically really actually inciting imminent violence against people. And that means, you know, initiation of force. And if they're not doing that, if there's not actual incitement to violence, and again, you know, we could argue, you could call in and give me a weird situation and we could say, is that incitement to violence or is it not? And we could debate all day, right? It's, it's, sometimes it's hard to draw that line, but that's the principle. The principle is let them spew their hatred, their vitriol, their irrational racism. Let them do it. Let them make fun of themselves. Look silly. Everybody will just make fun. People had a field day making fun of these guys out on social media and stuff. The memes and the Tiki Torch this and that. I mean, it's so much fun. And Ben Shapiro was great on it. Loved it. Let's make fun of them. Let's expose them for the ridiculous fringe soon to be gone movement that they are and let them speak, you know, unless they're inciting violence, unless they're doing the equivalent of saying, Hey, there's that guy over there. Let's go attack him now. Or, Hey, if you are a moral person, you're going to go attack him now or you know, whatever it is. So threats inciting violence, these need to be shut down. Other than that, anything goes. Um, but if there are threats, if there is incitement to violence, as a private company, of course, you should shut it down. Otherwise, you could be perhaps held accountable. There, you, you could wonder about what the standard is, right? So if you're Cloudflare, and suppose you protect thousands of websites 
is it going to be possible for you to always monitor every new blog post on those thousands of websites and be held accountable? No, there might have to be some sort of reporting mechanism and so that you would be held accountable in some way an accomplice to the incitement of violence only if there had been a report and a certain amount of time had passed. You know, government could set parameters for when you would be held to be an accomplice. Uh, or an accessory of some kind. But, you know, other than that, you have to have a reasonable standard for these service providers that they can technically live up to. If you're government, of course, you need to shut down. So if, you know, if they did have this Texas A&M rally, this White Lives Matter rally, and somebody was speaking and that speaker started an incitement of violence, any of the police there, they would have to shut the event down and say, no, sorry, you guys have lost your platform. In the chat room, they're saying, oh, my God, the uh, the, the tiki torches. That's awesome. Uh, Rob says, can you post the link to the thread here in the chat? Yes, of course you can post the link to the thread. The thread that I'm talking about on Facebook is a public thread. So I've got a number of public posts. If you just follow me on Facebook, you'll get to see a number of these threads where I post articles like this that I want to discuss publicly and, and get get a lot of input. There's a lot of good discussion going on there. Tom Bowden, yes, Tom Bowden's got a lot of great material on that thread. And, and he's very principled about it, right? You're going to be principled about it. You're not going to erect some sort of police barrier out in the front of the store before you even know whether there's somebody coming in to do the denial of service, right? The, the sending the crowd in and out of the entrance, that's his analogy. You're not going to do the, you know, put the police there. You, but what you will do is you'll have the police respond to a call from the store. If the store says, hey, we've got this huge crowd and they're blocking our customers, come on down. Yeah, that's what the proper role of government is. If government is going to operate on that principle, protecting individual rights, it's not going to be a gatekeeper at the entrance of any kind, as well-meaning as you might think it is. What we don't want is regulation in advance. What we want is, after the fact, some sort of redress for a violation of, of rights. So Rob's got the link there here in the chat room. Anybody else who's listening on the podcast, what maybe what I'll do is I'll go ahead and I'll add that post, the link to that post to the program notes in the blog at don'tletitgo.com so you can find it there. Um, so what, what's the upshot on this? Uh, did the guy make the right decision? It depends what his goal is, right? Is his goal to keep as many customers as possible? If his goal is to keep as many customers as possible, perhaps the outrage against the Nazis is enough that you know, he wants to go ahead and, and make a lot of his customers happy by terminating the daily stormer as, as one of the clients. On the other hand, it's, you know, this is a teaching opportunity for these business leaders as well. Remember, I was cheering those business leaders who decide that they're not going to sit on Trump's manufacturing council or arts council or whatever it is anymore. The, some people, they left on principle and said, you did not speak out strongly enough against these racist white supremacist thugs um, and so therefore I'm leaving I, I, those, those are good decisions to make what you could do suppose you're the head of Cloudflare 
and maybe you do some sort of polling research and, and you determine that most of your customers are going to be happier if you terminate the daily stormer. Suppose that's what you see. You might just, just decide to terminate the daily stormer or you could say, hmm, I wonder if I could send an email to all of these customers and explain my decision to keep the daily stormer even though I disagree with the message and tell them exactly why. And you could go ahead and quote heavily from the FEE article or whatever and, and you know, and, and talk about, hey, if, if you ever see a site that we manage that is actually inciting violence, of course, we will shut that down. But on the other hand, let's go ahead and let the Nazis make fools of themselves. Let them expose themselves for the ridiculously wrong people there are. That's kind of my answer on it. Now, I've got Stuart, I think, still on hold over in the chat room. Stuart, let me know, you know, in the chat room if you still want to speak. What I'll do is I'll let you do that after I take another quick musical interlude break here. Um, it's going to be, you know, again, 30 seconds, a minute or so of a musical break. And we'll come back and I want to go into the issue of privacy after that as well. So here we go. A little bit of Jezebel's. everyone I am back here and I'm going to try to fade the Jezebels out gracefully using the blog talk radio discreet not continuous fader that they've got there in the studio that wasn't too bad right that sounded not too bad semi-professional awesome again those of you who are listening to the recorded podcast you heard not only Jezebel's a little piece there which is the first song that started it all for me but you also heard a couple ads, and I ask you to be patient with those ads. We're going to try to go faster and monetize. In the chat room, Rob is saying that he believes it's the company's call, their territory, their rules. Keep or kick off anyone you want. And he says that he, you know, he does it himself with specific subject, uh, subject-specific social media areas that he has. Yeah, I mean, everybody does this in their own little realm. You know, you decide what you want to have, for instance, on your Facebook page. Who do you want to have as friends on Facebook? Who do you want to allow to comment on your posts? At a certain point, I mean, for me, it's more of rudeness. And, you know, if someone's being really rude and nasty or comes around only to just kind of repeatedly 
say the same thing over and over on threads all the time and just becomes like a broken record and continues to do it regardless of your request that they don't, that person's blocked, that person's gone. But it's it's not about content as much as conduct. That's the kind of criteria that I use. When I get a sense on like something like Twitter, when I get a sense that people are just very irrational and that they've created an account specifically to troll Trump critics and that you're not going to get anywhere with that person at all, including, you know, demonstrating any sort of rational discussion. I I will often just start ignoring them. You know, I won't even read their stuff anymore. And I think that's a pretty healthy way to go as well. Let me get Stuart really quickly on the line and then I got to get over to privacy. Stuart, did you have anything to add? Uh, Aloha. Hi. Well, yeah, I mean, I I think I'm really worried about how the left is um, sort of exploiting, exploiting um, what the, um, you know, Richard Spencer and the white nationalists did, especially in Charlottesville. They're actually Mm -hmm. saying this to advocate class warfare. Um, You you know what, you know what's going to be telling, you know what's going to be telling on this front. And this is something that I hadn't, talked about yet but you can look at it over in the program notes oh gosh it says that the call has dropped from Stuart Um, so Stuart I'm actually going to say let's go ahead and keep it dropped and maybe we can continue more of the discussion but one thing I want to have people look at is in the program notes I've got a link to a Milo Yiannopoulos post and he's got text from a letter that the new chancellor of UC Berkeley sent out to the UC Berkeley community talking about the fact that they are going to host Milo Yiannopoulos and also Ben Shapiro in September at UC Berkeley. I want to see how those events go. I want to see the police come in and actually do the job of having these speakers. Ben Shapiro is not alt-right. We could talk about Milo's maybe alt-right. He's Milo's about Milo. Milo's about how he looks and he does ridiculous stuff and it's sad is he all right? It's hard to even tell exactly because, yeah. Anyway, whatever he is, he's going to speak, and the Antifa people are probably going to come and try to do a counter-protest and try to shut it down. Let's watch and see how that event, those events are managed. Because I'm pretty heartened by the chancellor's statement, talking about why, on principle, they, as a university, do need to honor the student group's request to host these speakers at the university regardless of the alt-left or Antifa wanting to shut this down. Um, Yeah, Milo is is really a character. Oh, Milo and then also Ann Coulter to speak at Berkeley. As far as I know, it was also going to be Ben Shapiro. So if you've got Milo and Ann Coulter and Ben Shapiro at Berkeley, those are going to be events where we're going to get to see You know, what is truly the reaction to the aftermath in Charlottesville? Is Antifa going to continue to be kind of this fringe movement? Are the police come in and, you know, are they going to come in and actually do their job? That's that's what I'd like to see. This is going to give us more opportunities to observe. But I was heartened, uh, you know, as I said, in terms of handling this issue of freedom of expression by the chancellor's statement. It's not exactly the same, right? It's not Nazis. You know, whatever you want to say, if. Coulter or Milo is part of the alt-right or something, if you think that they are. 
that's still not the same as, as being a Nazi. And so you could say, well, it's different from A&M. But nonetheless, it's good to see UC Berkeley, you know, coming down firmly on the side of, of hosting these speakers. And it's going to be very interesting to see how those events play out. And then we'll be able to uh, category three catastrophe about to hit Berkeley, says Rob. Let's hope not. And it sounds like the chancellor is braced and ready to handle it the way that they do. The one thing that I heard out there, and I need to look more into this, is that maybe Berkeley is charging a lot to these groups for security, that they're charging extra in some way. That starts to get a little weird because we've got with these universities quasi-government entities that should not discriminate based on content. So if you have this policy that you're going to do this, was it's going to be like what based on anticipated security costs, and that's going to be the policy that's applied content neutrally to all the student groups or something. You know, we could have a discussion about that the other day, but I am very interested to see how these events play out. Tim in the chat room is citing a chapter from Milo's book. I'm going to have to get into Milo's book, and then I'm going to have to tell you what I think of Milo after I read his book. And uh, he's got one chapter, Why the Alt-Right Hates Me. So that'll be interesting. Sometimes <laughs> there's uh, yeah, some objectivists that, that hate me, right? People who call themselves objectivists anyway. I'm not going to make that distinction, though. Anyway, let's go on to my third topic, because I've only got what, 15 minutes left, and I have to describe to you some content of my dissertation. The news story that I got plopped into my lap is that the Indian Supreme Court has made a landmark ruling on privacy that they have declared that there is a fundamental right to privacy in India and that that ruling is likely to have negative implications for a biometric scheme that has been implemented to a large extent already in India. Uh, this biometric scheme is extremely invasive. You have to give biometric evidence, you know, of fingerprints and stuff, not because you've committed any sort of a crime, not even because you're becoming a lawyer, an officer of the court. You know, we have to fingerprint um, and then have your fingerprints in a database. No, you have to have your fingerprint in a database Simply, if you're going to get access to welfare benefits, that's kind of a murky area. Just to have a bank account, you have to give this biometric information, your fingerprint, to pay your taxes, right? There's a number of things that you, you know, once you do purchases above a certain amount or whatever, that you have to give this information. So it's very invasive. So a lot of people are cheering a ruling that is going to fight off this program. But let me tell you my problem with it. What they're saying is they're putting in terms of a fundamental right to privacy. And it just so happens that I wrote my entire dissertation on the so-called right to privacy. And I argue in my dissertation that while I believe strongly in the legal protection of privacy, that privacy is a very important value that we need to protect in the law, that the way to do it is via our existing rights to liberty, property, and contract. And that, ironically, if you create or try to create in law a distinct right to privacy, that it is wrong and will ironically undermine the proper legal protection for privacy in the long term. And the place that I give this 
really most important part of the argument was in the last part of my dissertation. It happens to be the third law review article that I spun off out of my dissertation. And I put a link to it in the program notes in the chat room. So how often is it that you get to give a link to a chunk of your dissertation in program notes to a podcast, but that's what I did. The title of it is Beyond Reductionism, Reconsidering the Right to Privacy. Reductionism is merely this theory in the literature out there. And of course, you know, I had to do my literature review and all of that. It's a theory that says any case that you can name that would properly come under a right to privacy that would be protected, I can reduce what's going on in that case to a violation of someone's liberty, a violation of their property rights, a violation of their right to contract. So reductionism just says you can reduce it. Now, what I attempt to do in this article is I go beyond that and I say, you know, the fact that you can reduce it, first of all, means that there shouldn't be a separate right. But I also just talk about why privacy is not a fundamental right. Um, and so what I want to do in the last several minutes that I've got here for the show is give you an explanation of this. So I'm hoping you all had your coffee. Um, I make an analogy. I had an analogy that came to my mind earlier today between this and the sending. I am convinced that sending is uh, that piece is beautiful and I'm trying to get people to listen to it and see what they think, but I decided I just go with it. Similarly, the argument that I'm about to give you, I think it's a great argument based on Rand's theory and you know, you can decide, take it or leave it or not, but I'm going to try to be as clear as possible in the minutes we have remaining to explain to you why I don't think privacy is a fundamental right. That's the tall order that I've given myself here. So, this is what we need to think about. You need to think about what rights are in Rand's view, and I agree with her view. For her, rights are rights to action, rights to take actions and, in the case of the right to property, for example, retain the consequences of acting in certain ways, acting in productive ways. So, if you think about that idea of rights as rights to action, let's compare and contrast two candidates for being, you know, called rights. And, you know, for Rand, Rand thinks that the basic, the, you know, the fundamental right that you have is the right to life and that any other right that you have is a, is a corollary or some exercise of that. So the, the two main corollaries for Rand are liberty, the freedom to act on your own judgment, according to your own judgment, and the right to property, which is the right to keep and retain the consequences of your actions when you are out there acting on your own judgment. And we need to have both of those in order to sustain human life using our, our reason, our, our faculty. Now, there are a couple other rights, and you could say, okay, they're fundamental rights. One is freedom of expression. We we're talking about the importance of freedom of expression in the last segment, and then privacy. But let's think about freedom of expression first. When, and and let, let's think about freedom of expression this way, right? I, I talked about Ted Cruz and how he understood that in order to actually speak today, you have to spend money. You've got to buy ads in newspapers. You've got to, you know, create a beautiful website and pay for Cloudfare and, you know, all this. You have to spend money. I have to spend money 
Blog Talk Radio. Thank you to those of you who support me because I pay a little monthly fee and stuff and pay for my internet service provider and all that kind of stuff. You have to spend some money. So I am exercising my right to property in order to speak. But if you think about speaking and you think about it, you know, the exercising freedom of expression at the very most basic level and you strip away anything that has to do with property, what is it? What is the most basic, basic thing you do? You just talk. So I could go out there and stand on some piece of land where I have the right to be and just say something. That would be the most basic action. There aren't necessarily spending any money, um, you know, not broadcasting or anything else, but I'm just speaking. But I am acting, right? I'm acting. So you could say, okay, it is an exercise of a right. You're acting. Now let's think about privacy, there's a lot of ways that we use property and contract to protect our privacy. And I talk a lot about those in actually earlier articles from this. I talk about, you know, you write in a diary and the diary is your property and you put that diary in a desk and maybe you've got one of those desks that locks with a key. And then of course the desk itself is either in the apartment that you rent, you know, that you have this right to this space exclusively, or maybe it's a home that you own and you, you know, you've locked the front door. So you're using your property to protect your privacy. But then think about the very most basic thing that you would do to keep some thought of yours private that doesn't have anything to do with exercising a right to property. What is it that you would do if you want to keep it completely private? You actually refrain from acting. You actually don't act. You keep your mouth shut, right? You keep the thought in your head. You don't put it on paper in a diary. You don't say it to anyone. You know, if you say it to somebody and you say it in a context where you could be overheard because it's not, you know, your apartment, your home, whatever, somebody might hear you. All of those things, if, if you want to let the idea out of your mind and express it somehow orally or in writing or whatever, suddenly you are automatically bringing an exercise of a right to property into play. Maybe liberty, you say, okay, you go off into a certain corner or whatever, but you, you have to use other rights in order to keep things private unless you keep it in your head. Whereas with speaking, right, freedom of expression, you, just, you, you are acting, whereas privacy at the most basic level, you are refraining from acting. So that's my first argument, how you could say that Expression is a right. Freedom of expression is a right in a way that privacy fundamentally is not. Another thing to think about, another factor to think about, and in, in particular, I've got a friend, Katan, who I'm going to try to convince that this ruling from the Indian Supreme Court is actually not a good thing. Um, it's not a fundamental right. Uh, the other thing to think about is when you go into society, you want to specialize and you want to engage in trade with others. If others are going to trade with you, you're going to have to give up some information about yourself. If you want to have a discussion with me on Twitter, for example, I am going to be much more likely to engage in discussion with you if you don't look like you've created a troll account anonymously just now in order to mess with me. If you have a real name and an established account and I could tell you're a person and stuff, yeah, You've given up a little bit of information about yourself, and I might engage in more discussion with you. Similarly with other types of trade that you do throughout society, economic trade or trade of knowledge or anything else, 
expect to give up some information about yourself in order for people to want to exchange with you. So there's that idea. You know, rights only apply when you come into society. When you go into society, you can expect to get a lot wealthier in terms of property, but at the same time, commensurately, you could expect to give up some privacy. That's why I don't think we, we should think of privacy as fundamental. Lastly, let me think, let me give you one last type of argument to think of. Again, if you're thinking about, you, you know, exercising a right to privacy, suppose there is a right to privacy and you, you know, don't think about that, you know, just kind of withholding, you think about all the exercises of your property rights that you engage in, right. That in order to do that. So for example, you know, I, I write in the diary and I put it in the desk and I lock the desk and I, um, you know, lock the front door and all this stuff. So suppose somebody comes in my house and they steal that diary and you want to say, okay, it's not just robbery or theft or whatever. It's a violation of the right to privacy. The question I have for you is what does calling it a violation of a right to privacy add above and beyond just the property violation itself, the violation of the right to property. What makes it a violation of a right to privacy per se? And then you answer, well, it's the private nature of the stuff. It's this information in the diary is so private. What I submit is if you actually think about this, you know, what is a right to privacy add? What is the designation of a right to privacy add above property or contract or liberty, these other rights? The thing that it adds is the characterization of the underlying stuff as private. And I would say that that is non-objective, that that is a value judgment. Privacy is a value. It's a state that we create for ourselves using rights to property and contract and our liberty. And um, if you create privacy as, as a distinct right, what it depends on is it depends on everybody having some sort of consensus or a judge deciding that something is private. It's not objective any more than obscenity law is objective. I think obscenity law is, is, a, is a bad thing. You know, you need to base any uh, banning of content on actual physical rights violations, not on it's pornographic or whatever. Uh, you could do a thought experiment, and I do it in the article. If, if you guys have the stomach to read scholarly work, I, I like my article. I was reading parts of it today, and it holds up for me still. I'm, I'm still proud of it. So take a look at it. I'd add some things in, you know, some concretes that have come up since the time I published back in 2008. But I, I still like it. Um, I, I talk about in there, and, and I just – now because I was praising my article, I lost my thought – there was, oh, oh, yeah, luxurious. There's a thought experiment about, you know, luxurious. What if I said, okay, you know, there's a right to luxury. <laughs> so what is lux luxurious to one person versus another? It's a value judgment. And, you know, again, I, I think it's not objective to have a right to privacy. So then that's, those are all different arguments saying that it's not fundamental. It's not objective. And the last part of the article is devoted to saying if we do enforce a right to privacy separately from these other rights as, as a distinct right, it tends to erode 
our real rights to liberty and property and contract. And one way, one area you see this is in reproductive, so-called reproductive rights. If Roe versus Wade was not decided on right to privacy grounds, it would have forced the court to actually confront whether we, you know, women have fundamental rights over their own bodies. And maybe they would have reached the right answer. Instead, it's this balancing test with privacy versus the government interest, the three trimester, blah, blah. It's a huge mess. So there's that. Uh, then I argue about how our rights to property and contract are infringed upon. There are a number of cases where courts have been asked to pit against one another the right to privacy of one person, the alleged right to privacy of one person versus a property right of another. I'll give you one example. A rental car company has a policy that if you drive their car, when you rent it, if you drive their car above a certain speed, they're going to charge you extra. Somebody rents the car, doesn't read the fine print. They drove above a certain speed. They came back. They got charged extra. And the company says, well, you know, you didn't read the fine print. It's there. And they said, oh, well, I have a right to privacy that doesn't allow you to monitor me while I'm driving your car. So it's the rental car's right to property on the one hand versus the alleged customer, you know, the customer's alleged right to privacy on the other. What you're going to get in the long term with those types of conflicts, employer versus employee, for example, is an erosion of legal protection for privacy through property, because property really is the way that we protect privacy. I'm actually out of time, people. Um, but yeah, I think there is no fundamental right to privacy and to follow the logical train out that even though it sounds good in the short term to stop this biometric monitoring, I'd rather see the decision made on a different ground. So um, go to don'tletitgo.com for all the awesome program notes. Listen to the music that I put there. Enjoy the post-eclipse links that I put in there as well. And I will talk to you guys next Wednesday. I'm going to go back to the Wednesdays for the next couple weeks. And that's 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific next Wednesday. Take care. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk soon. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.